What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. And uh, this episode's a little different. Not okay. necessarily for the content. No. But? Because we, I kind of feel like a movie star. <laughs> Something like that. I feel like we have a legit podcast now. Yeah, we just basically said lights, camera, action. Yep. We even did the whole clapper thing so we can sync up the audio and video. We did. We got multiple camera angles going for the first time. We've been talking about this for like 17 years now. We do. We have a producer who's not fake like Steve, the old producer. He's a real life person. He is. AJ, you guys have all met AJ before on the on the podcast a couple times. P2 student at MUSC. He's helping us out. He's in the uh, command deck over there. Yeah. Hey, hey. You know, this is what I'm going to do right here. For, for I'm going to get a quick video footage of it just sitting over here on my phone. I'll splice that in later. Um, but yeah, this is the nonsense that we actually have going on behind the scenes. All right. So, um, all that being said, uh, we're going to see how this goes. It's probably going to go uh, horrifically wrong for I think the it's first. It's going to go uh, perfectly. All right. That's cool. We'll see. And then, uh, yeah, we'll just, worst case, we blame it on AJ. That's why he's here. <laughs> he's the scapegoat. So last week, um, we did medications that, uh, you know, we need to either watch out for or, um, utilize during pregnancy, like preferred medications. So we're going to keep the, the women's health, um, subject going. Yeah, this we're going to, we're going to stay consistent instead yeah. of bouncing around to some random other disease state, which is fine. Yeah. And in reality, in full disclosure, it's because this is the section we're doing for my PA students and I'm lazy. So there but you go. We've got, we got content. And it's fresh in your brain, so we're going to... It's borderline fresh in my brain. We're, we're going to spill it all out of your brain <laughs> into everybody else's brain. Yeah. And hopefully we won't lose all of our listeners in the process. So yeah, we're talking about hormonal contraception. Yep. Right. So we're going to walk you through a little bit of the menstrual cycle stuff, just so you have a baseline um, idea of where we are acting and what we are affecting. Uh, and then we're going to tell you some stuff about um, the different types of hormonal contraception, some side effects, and what options we have, and what's good and what's bad. In yep. what situation? Absolutely. And all the things. Kind of go through uh, even some of the new kids in the block too. Make sure we catch yeah. on that. Mm -hmm. So as far as kind of reviewing through the menstrual cycle, we're going to go fairly quick through this. Um, but it, on average, uh, menstrual cycle takes around 28 days. Um, some are shorter, some are longer. But basically you have two sort of main phases with one kind of midpoint that uh, known as ovulation. And so the first half is going to be the follicular phase. Um, second half after ovulation is going to be the luteal phase. Um, so during the, the follicular phase, that's where your, um, your follicle stimulating hormone, uh, begins to start to rise over time over the, those first few days. So really days one through four, they start to go up. Um, and that's where we're kind of getting the, um, small group of follicles that are eventually going to, um, have the dominant follicle that's going to be responsible for releasing the oocyte. Um, and so as time kind of progresses, um, the, those, those two hormones are kind of moving, um, the concentrations are increasing, and at the same time, uh, estrogen and progesterone, uh, which are kind of um, laying low, so to speak, um, are starting to um, gain a little bit of, of uh, traction, if you will. Um, and so once that, that domino, dominant follicle um, 
is going to basically uh, develop this um, estradiol, which is then going to um, lead to a negative feedback um, on the hypothalamic uh, secretion of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, um, as well as the pituitary secretion of follicle-stimulating hormone. And so that's what's going to kind of start bringing those levels back down. Um, and then the rest of the follicles that are not considered to be, you know, the the dominant follicle that has the oocyte is going are going to be um, kind of broken down and gotten rid of. And uh, from there, as the um, estradiol levels start to continue continue to stay elevated, um, we're going to get this mid-cycle luteinizing hormone surge where we get this sudden spike in luteinizing hormone. Um, that's going to kind of stimulate the uh, final stages of follicular maturation and eventually leading to ovulation. And um, that follicular rupture is then going to sort of release that oocyte. Um, and then that's going to travel to the fallopian tube where hopefully uh, it can uh, undergo fertilization and um, implantation eventually with an embryo. Um, but the luteal phase, when we start talking about like, um, you know, contraception and whatnot, that's usually where we have a little bit more elevated levels of progesterone and estrogen. And, um, and basically we we're tricking the body, so to speak, into keeping it kind of in that phase, or at least it thinks it's in that phase so that it's um, not actually undergoing ovulation. Uh, and then we use the placebo if it's the combination you know, to kind of allow the menstrual cycle to restart. Um, NC is, is, you know, once that's done, you just keep on going through the, the pattern without actually, um, or at least the idea is to not actually be able to uh, have um, ovulation and become pregnant. And as we go through it, you know, some of these birth controls are continuous or every three months to where you only have a menstrual cycle every three months or every year or never. And you'll probably commonly get a question um, as to whether that's safe. And some people might be concerned that, the you know, it's just increasing the lining and that they might have a really heavy period after they come off of it or something like that. But that's not the case. And it's because it stops it effectively in this phase. So it's not dangerous to not have a menstrual cycle. Yes, that is a, it is an interesting kind of debate though, because I've even heard some OBs and stuff still recommending to, uh, to have one just to have off of, uh, on occasion or every month. They, they say like every three months or so, every mm -hmm. three or four, but just it's, even then like you ask them like a reasoning or data behind it, it's at least the ones I've talked to are kind of like, I just feel like we shouldn't be just not having one ever. I'm sure that which, there's some you know, unknown. Yeah. And so just to be safe, you'd sure. rather have something be what you might consider natural. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so when we are talking about oral contraceptives, typically we are thinking of the combination products of estrogen um, as well as a uh, progestin, which is just a synthetic form of progesterone. Um, so it's usually a combination of the two, but really kind of the the workhorse of the group is the progestin. Um, so it's going to have all kinds of different sort of mechanisms at play here to kind of prevent pregnancy. Um, so it's going to basically thicken some of that um, cervical mucus um, that's going to prevent sperm penetration. It's going to slow uh, tubing motility. It's going to delay sperm transport. Uh, it's going to help uh, sort of induce endometrial atrophy. Um, it's also going to block that luteinizing hormone surge um, and then basically inhibit ovulation from there. Whereas estrogen does have a supportive role, if you will, where it's kind of helping to suppress follicle-stimulating hormone release from the pituitary. Um, and so that may kind of contribute to the blocking of that luteinizing hormone surge as well. Um, but its kind of primary role is to sort of stabilize that endometrial lining and, and provide like kind of a, a controlled cycle to keep everything kind of moving the way it's physiologically intended. Um, but the progesterone is really what's keeping the majority of 
um, you know, the contraception activity it, right. it going. Exactly. And there's multiple estrogen and progestin combination formulations. As any pharmacist could probably tell you, it's uh, difficult to keep them all together, especially when you're thinking brand generic. Any pharmacy student um, could tell you that hopefully uh, the professor didn't make them memorize all the brand and generics of the different ones, but you probably had to remember some. So we're going to try to break it down into some categories that make it a little easier to remember. Uh, and then, you know, there's a million brand names out there, but at least with the combinations and what the doses are, you might remember it a little bit better. Um, but there is uh, monophasic, which keeps the same dose of estrogen and progestin throughout all the active tablets. And there's also bi, tri, and quadraphasic, which would be different doses that mimic the estrogen and progestin levels during an actual menstrual cycle. And that's where you'll see, where you'll see the layered dosing as it goes throughout the month. Um, the estrogen component is typically ethanol estradiol. It would be um, EE if you're reading it, but est ethanol estradiol. Uh, but there's various progestins used, so there could be, could be a lot of different ones. You'll also see progestin-only formulations of contraceptives as well. Um, now, these are going to be considered um, less effective than the combos um, just because they're associated with um, irregular and kind of like unpredictable uh, menstrual bleeding. Um, again, because you don't have that estrogen component kind of helping to keep the cycle um, controlled. But uh, the other thing that's that's kind of difficult with, with the progesterone only is the dose is really important as far as, um, timing, even on a day-to-day -day basis, because, you know, with some of the, uh, with the combo products, we're not as worried about missing a dose, um, because we have some kind of leeway there. You have basically a three hour window between your scheduled dose and, you know, when you took it the previous day to make sure that you take that before it's considered to be not effective or no longer, um, having, a positive uh, contraceptive activity. Is that a, is that a real thing? Right. To I'm me, making up words. To me, I would say th that's the window to where I should be freaking out or not, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, when did you take Especially it? Especially you, because yeah. now, yeah. now we, we know for sure this is what happens. We need to wait a little while <laughs> before we... Yeah, uh, yeah, don't... Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. That's way too quick. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and we'll go through more of these towards the end, but, um, there are certain like situations where progesterone only formulations would be, um, the kind of the go-to. So for example, um, estrogen can kind of reduce the production of breast milk. So if you have a, a new mother that's breastfeeding, um, giving them an estrogen component of their contraception could potentially limit their milk supply. Um, same thing with, um, patients who have, sort of like a, you know, either whether it's uncontrolled hypertension or migraines with aura, um, the estrogen component kind of puts them at higher risk for things like strokes. Um, and, you know, it's something that we, in some patients, need to limit uh, and, and limit their access to and just give them progesterone only to kind of limit the risk um, and get that estrogen component out of there. So there are good valid reasons to use the progesterone only but know that it's a little bit more of a pain to kind of schedule it and all that yeah and we'll go through some other side effects of estrogen as well so you might ask well why don't we just use progesterone only in everybody which mike touched on not necessarily as effective and in a lot of healthy uh, young females the primary concern would be preventing an unwanted pregnancy in that situation um but in general the birth control is going to come in packs of 28 uh, tablets, so four-week supply. The four-week uh, packs would usually have 21 or 24 active hormone tablets, 
with the other tablets being their placebo tablets. Uh, they might be an iron tablet or a Foley tablet just to keep those levels up. Um, but in general, they um, are not uh, hormonal. Progestin-only formulations have all active tablets, so there are no, um, no placebo tablets. The inactive tablets allow the patients to continue having a period, so it will um, allow them to have a menstrual cycle if it's every month. Um, bleeding time is reduced with a reduction in the number of inactive tablets. So 24 versus 21, the bleeding time would be reduced. Uh, there's also extended cycle oral contraceptives, which we touched on. Usually that's 84 days of active tablets, so about three months. Uh, the patients will have a period once every three months when they're doing this, um, and some might not have a period at all, even um, depending on if they take them back to back or even during the, the placebo tablet phase. Um, continuous use can potentially make, uh, make it difficult to tell if a woman became pregnant. So that's a concern that a lot of people might have. They want to have a menstrual cycle once in a blue moon, maybe once every three months, um, you know, to, to know that they're not pregnant. Otherwise, they may just be wondering um, and, you know, there could be some anxiety associated with that. Um, breakthrough bleeding, um, which, you know, they may call spotting, typically occurs with continuous contraception, but usually resolves after three to six months of continuous use. So adverse effects of estrogen. Cole said, obviously, there's more uh, to it than you know what we already mentioned, but some common adverse effects, um, things that we would you know kind of expect and can probably deal with, things like breast tenderness or breast fullness, um, as well as some nausea um, or bloating, uh, maybe a little bit of weight gain, uh, but then also hypertension is is a concern as well. So you're going to get a uh, approximately like a six to eight millimeters of mercury um, increase in your systolic blood pressure um, just by being on an estrogen product. So if you have somebody who you know is already dealing with uncontrolled hypertension or has cardiovascular disease then we got to be real careful with that um, now you may have a patient that's talking you know or, or telling you that they're having some breakthrough bleeding or, or some quote-unquote spotting um, but that's not necessarily like an adverse effect as much as it is with your body kind of trying to get back into a cycle again and so uh, a lot of times we can kind of control that with just the straight estrogen dosing itself. Um, however, we do want to wait about three months before we start switching to a, either a different formulation or dose because we want to give it time to kind of the body to kind of sort of like um, get back on its normal cycle, regulate again, um, because if we change too quickly, we may never be able to kind of get everything back in uh, homeostasis again. Um, so now, we're talk now we come to like some of the more severe uh, adverse effects of something that, you know, is a lot of people will have discussed and I remember even hearing about this when I was you know in high school and mm -hmm. some of that but um, they do carry black box warning for increased risk of thrombosis uh, meaning DVT or VTE um, also you know ischemic thrombosis so like an MI or, or a stroke um, basically uh, estrogen is going to increase the hepatic production of various clotting factors um, including factor 10 and factor 7 um, fibrinogen, things like that. Um, and it's going to increase the risk of having a thromboembolic event. And uh, if there is some sort of like underlying hypercoagulable disease state that's happening as well, then that puts the patient at that much more risk. And um, it's just something that we need to be really aware of um, and make sure that we're doing a good history on the patient and making sure we're checking all the other um, risk factors to make sure that we don't put them in any more risk than they need to be. Yeah. And also, you know, counseling on make sure, making sure they have informed consent because 
I mean, a lot of people take birth control, so it's generally regarded as safe. And so the public sentiment is that, oh, it's just something we take and there's you know, maybe not any side effects. Just make sure they understand. And if they don't have any underlying risk factors, explain what the risks are, um, just so they're aware. Uh, but there are other patient populations um, who may be at higher risk for this. So um, you want to avoid the use of estrogen containing oral contraceptives in patients who are older than 35 years of age who smoke. Um, so there's an increased risk of VTE, especially in perimenopausal women older than 40. Uh, oral contraceptives with 50 micrograms of ethanol estradiol or more were associated with MI in women who smoked. Uh, smoking 15 or more cigarettes per day by women in this age group is a contraindication for hormonal contraceptives. So consider the patient-specific risks and benefits if you're using these um, in any um, person over the age of 35 who's, who um, and, and they may improve or decrease the chance of developing perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms um, and increase bone mineral density. So, and, and I think that's an important distinguishing factor too, because I think it's easy to say, well, if your patient is, um, you know, 35 or over, especially 40, then we'll just not use hormonal contraception, especially estrogen components. One, I mean, 40 year olds still need contraception in it's some cases. I, I sure hope, um, you know, when I hit 40, I'm still at least in the game, but, uh, <laughs> and, uh you know, for my, for my wife's sake, but, um, the, uh, you know, when we're thinking kind of long term, you know, the having that sort of um, higher level of estrogen present does um, decrease those chances, like Cole said, of developing those menopausal symptoms and especially the bone mineral density um, loss that we typically see, um, you know, in, in menopausal women um, that start developing this osteoporosis. But if we can kind of prevent some of that, it's sort of... Um, you know, brings brings to light a lot more benefit that we can kind of start really evaluating the the true risk versus reward sort of uh, conversation, right? Um, because I think it's easy just to kind of blow it up, but there are reasons why it would be healthy and beneficial for a female patient, even in their mid to late thirties, to be on these. Yeah, for sure. All right. So if, if you have a patient that, um, you know, has a history of a DVTAPE, um, any kind of like coronary artery disease, or they've had an ischemic stroke, a TIA, whatever, you know, it, ideally we would, you know, want to avoid the combination products in these patients, um, because the, the risk of them having a thromboembolytic event, um, and even, um, you know, passing away from from one of these, like a PE or something, is increased um, threefold if a patient is on uh, a combo oral contraceptive compared to someone who's not. Um, that being said, you know, we still have to take into account, you know, do they have access to something else? Are they going to take, are they going to be adherent if they're on a progesterone-only um, formulation? You know, do they have access or the funds to pay for an IUD? Or do they even want an IUD? You know, there's, there's other variables to where, you know, it just if those things don't work out, then we still need to have the conversation about the combo products because when a patient becomes pregnant, they're going to be in a hypercoagulable state. The risk of VTE is going to go up even more. And so, yes, we are putting them at higher risk by starting them on an oral contraceptive, but that's also potentially keeping them from having um, an unwanted pregnancy that could even put them at higher risk for a VTE. Right. So, again, it just all kind of comes back to you need to make sure you have a long conversation with the patient, tell them the risks, the benefits and all that, and make sure that they're a part of the the shared decision-making that the uh, Heart Association likes to talk about. I think it's really important here too. Yeah. Um, and then as far as, 
some of the progesterone components, um, there are, uh, some progestins that are considered to be sort of like, um, androgenic resistant. So, you know, the androgenic effects that we kind of think about would be like oily skin, which leads to acne, um, you know, water retention and bloating. Um, some of those just unwanted, um, side effects. And so a lot of times we'll try to pick a progesterone component that can kind of alleviate those types of side effects of those androgenic events. Um, and to, we even have drosperinone, which is like an anti-androgenic progesterone. Um, however, especially with, with drosperinone, um, that can actually lead to basically a more estrogenic effect of the estrogen component of the combo um, because it has the anti-androgenic effect. Now, there's nothing to oppose estrogen um, activity, and so you get an even higher like response to that estrogen. Um, it also can kind of increase the resistance to our natural anticoagulant effects, so things like um, activated protein C, protein S, antithrombin, um, and it can kind of um, limit those as well that can kind of help alleviate the risk of, of, of VTE. And so you got to be careful with those particular progestins if the patient has a, a past history of any of those things or CAD, um, because usually those are the ones I'm looking for Right. Um, to alleviate the other types of annoying side effects that we don't want. And going along with what Mike was talking about before, there's also, if a patient has a history of breast, ovarian, or liver cancer, you want to avoid the use as well. Um, but for healthy young women, the benefits of hormonal contraception in preventing unwanted pregnancies, like we said, um, and associated with other benefits can definitely outweigh these risks. Uh, so it's just a conversation that you want to have. But consider alternative contraception options and women who are over 40 or an elevated risk for breast, can breast cancer because of maybe family history or other factors. Um, as far as the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, um, it's kind of unclear what the increased risk would be in that situation. Um, so yeah, the data is still kind of, kind of out on that. But similarly, blood pressure, if you want to avoid if the blood pressure is over 160 over 100. So Mike mentioned that you could get a 6 to 8 millimeters of mercury um, bump in blood pressure from the estrogen. Um, so if it is uh, high like that and you want to avoid it. Um, an increased risk for MI and stroke were seen in some case control studies of women with hypertension who are taking hormonal contraceptives. If a uh, hormonal contraceptive related increase in blood pressure does occur, you can stop it. Uh, it doesn't restore the blood pressure immediately. Um, usually, uh, it, it would get back down to pretreatment values in about three to six months. So it can definitely take some time. Um, but a systolic blood pressure over 160 or diastolic over 100 is definitely considered a contraindication. And you know, when you're kind of going through all these different risks with a patient, it's, it's going to be important to tell them some of the signs and things to watch out for. Because if we're thinking about like from if we're treating hypertension or diabetes or something, you know, those patients are going to be following up with us every three months potentially, maybe maybe even more, um, and then at least every six months after that, um, you know, these patients may not come back for another year or two. And so, you know, making sure that you're educating the patient on like signs and symptoms to look for that could be indicative of like a really serious um, emergency like event, um, you know, telling them to watch for, you know, tenderness or swelling, um, you know, warmth in, in the legs or especially one leg, um, any sort of like slurred speech, um, any like severe pains in the chest or left arm or neck, um, they can kind of be maybe early signs of, um, uh, of an MI, um, loss of vision could be, um, retinal artery thrombosis, same with hemorrhagic stroke, uh, where you get this unilateral numbness or the 
the slowing of the speech. So just making sure that patients are aware of like what to kind of watch out for so that they, if they know what to watch out for, they're going to be a lot more um, keen in when they do start noticing something's wrong. And while the um, progestin adverse effects may be more mild, there definitely are some adverse effects um, versus estradiol. So some that you might see, breast tenderness, similar to estradiol, headache, fatigue, mood changes. Um, with the injectable medroxyprogesterone, you can see bone mineral density decline in some of those patients. Um, but just like with estradiol, spotter, spotting is not an adverse effect. Um, it's something that can usually be controlled with the estrogen dosing. So let's talk through some examples. So we Cole earlier mentioned uh, monophasic um, combo products. And so just to name a couple, we have things like microgestin FE120. So basically the FE is showing you that the, the iron tablets are what makes up the seven placebo tablets. The one and the 20 is just the dosing, um, one norethindrone and 20 micrograms of um of the ethanol estradiol um, versus, versus like the low estrin 24. So that one's only going to have four inactive tablets. So we would expect to have, you know, shorter periods on that one. Um, they also have a, a form of iron um, ferrous fumarate, uh, in, which makes up those four placebo. Um, but the, the doses stay the same the whole pack. So they may have, you know, less tablets and whatnot, but uh, the actual dose is going to be the same. Whereas like the triphasic, the estrogen dose will stay the same, but the norgestimate dose is going to start to slowly creep up over the weeks um, until we hit week four where it's the placebos and then we start back over. So it kind of follows the same pattern as natural physiologic uh, menstrual cycle. But um, the quadrophasic is the one that's really unique. And this is one that I always think of if I have a patient who um, has access to this, you know, like, you know, insurance or what have you. Um, the quadrophasic is like the most realistic, you know, physiologically realistic, um, sort of, uh, contraception that we have as far as the way that the hormones change. Cause this one actually has, um, estradiol valerate in there and that, uh, dose will start to slowly decrease over, um, the weeks and then the progestin will start to increase. And so that one's the, the most realistic. And, um, so if you have a patient that's got like really like heavy menstrual bleeding, um, for like a menstrual related disorder, then, um, quad that quadrophasic, the, um, natesia would be a good option. To, to go with and then there's the extended cycles or continuous birth controls so you've probably heard of seasonique there's also amethia low uh, but the progestin component of those is levonorgestrel so they have 84 days of active tablets with seven days of placebo so they're going to have a menstrual cycle every three months with continuous it just means they don't have any placebos so amethyst would be one it also has levonorgestrel as the uh the progestin but they just come in a singular pack or a pack of three, 28 days of active drug, no placebo, um, no break, um, and uh, so no menstrual cycle. There's also the patch. So you've probably heard of the Zulane patch or the Orthoevra patch. Uh, the progestin component of those is noralgestrome, uh, but there are some specifics with the patches. Uh, you want to apply one patch once a week for three weeks, then you just take it off for a week, and you have a menstrual cycle. So just instead of taking placebo, placebo tablets, you have a patch-free week. Um, it will actually provide higher systemic estrogen exposure versus the tablet form, which is interesting. Um, you want to avoid in patients with risk factors for clots. Um, and if the patch falls off for more than 24 hours during the three weeks, 
or if you have a no patch interval that lasts more than seven days, you'd want to recommend using backup uh, contraception. So you may get some questions like that in the pharmacy if the patient has had a patch fall off or they just forgot to put it back on after their seven-day no patch period. And that, that's something that always surprises me is the concentration in the patch is actually potentially higher systemically than taken orally. I guess that first pass metal, metabolism does a number on uh, right. the estrogen. and so You would think generally, you know, yeah. it would not be. But I guess be uh, at first I was like, that's probably the only thing that I can think of that would be like that. And then I'm like, oh, fentanyl. Yeah. That's yeah. not that's not very potent very, yeah. at all uh, orally, but orally, that yeah. patch will do, do a number on you. Um, the, Though you hear of people putting those things on their tongues. The patch, I mean, it's got, it's insanity. It's insanity. Yeah. I can't even. I mean, there's people that have had. For like, consult RX does not recommend. That. <laughs> no, please don't. And don't put the birth control patch on your tongue either. Yes. Don't put any patches on your tongue. Just keep patches on your skin. What are you, a maniac? I know. Okay. It's a service announcement from us. Yeah. Thanks, Cole. You're welcome. Um, we have another patch, the Twirla. Um, this is the new kid in the block. It was approved in uh, late 2020. So it is uh, another just transdermal um, contraceptive patch. Same kind of thing where you wear one patch uh, each week for three weeks and then you leave the patch off. Um, and then the, the patch does need to be um, rotated through different sites so they can do the abdomen, the buttocks, the upper torso, um, excluding the breasts. Do not put the patch directly on the breast. That is not um, good. And then uh, in patients who are sort of, you know, just starting out um, with hormonal contraception that are going right to the Tortola, they recommend applying the first patch during the first 24 hours of menstruation. Um, if a patient has been on oral hormonal contraception, they say to kind of finish the current pill cycle and then apply the first patch on the day that the first pill from the new cycle would have started. So they kind of just Drift off into the next uh, drift off into the, in the sunset. It. Yeah, now you got a patch. Now you're birth controlled. You are birth controlled. Birth controlled. I like that. So we also have uh, NuvaRing, which went generic last year, I believe. Um, but it has etnogestrel as the progestin component. With this one, similar to the patch, uh, you're going to insert one ring vaginally for three weeks, take it out for a week. Um, the exact position of the ring does not matter as long as it's not around your finger or your wrist or your neck. Um, uh, the ring is sometimes used off-label continuously, so that's not approved that way, but sometimes it's used that way. Um, during, as far as if it uh, fa falls out, during weeks one and two, if it's out for less than three hours, rinse with water and reinsert. During week three, if the ring is removed, discard and use a new one. So, to, so literally today when I was going through some of this stuff with my PA students, uh, like an idiot, I made the joke of like, so if it's in less than three hours, just grabbing you and kind of five second rule blew it off like that and then after, as i'm doing i'm like oh boy there goes his career <laughs> so he's professional as always um got a, a smattering of laughs so i don't feel like i'm gonna get too much trouble about it but we'll see yeah probably not it was like a, not enough laughs to to think not that to, nobody's gonna report right you. there's yeah. always the one yeah you know right. you know you will well there goes that evaluation <laughs> Um, the, uh, the progesterone only tablets we mentioned earlier, um, the most common one you're going to see is the norethindrone. Um, Nora B is a brand name. Um, ortho micronor is a brand name of them. Um, but again, they're all active tablets. So no placebos and, uh, a little bit more, uh, Sometimes more tricky called the to pop use, pill, right? The, which one? The pop pill. Don't pop they call pill? it the progesterone only tablets? Oh yeah. Pop pills. P.O.P. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Pop. Pop. I thought you said pot and I was like, I don't think so. No, but. What a birth I, that, control that would be. That is not uh, that has not reached me yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, not aware of that. It's come across my desk. You might have that in Colorado. We'll ask. Maybe. Him. 
Um, injections, um, medoxyprogesterone or the Depo-Provera um, is the injection that you can do every three months. Um, now, that's another good option for if a patient is dealing with like a really heavy menstrual cycle or um, dysmenorrhea during the menstrual cycle because basically about half the patients that are treated with that injection um, and within the first year, um, they get left kind of amenorrheic. Um, so you're, probably, you're pretty much shutting off the um, the menstrual cycle to where they're not having a period anymore. And so they're not obviously having the dysmenorrhea or heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, you know, obviously once the injections stop coming, that's going to come back and then you get to deal with it, but at least it gives you some, some time. Uh, we also have longer acting forms of reversible, um, contraception, uh, levonorgestrel intrauterine devices. You've probably seen the commercials for Mirena or Skyla. Um, in general versus the copper IUD, which we'll talk about, they cause lighter menstrual bleeding in minor or no cramping. Um, the Mirena is approved for up to five years of use and Skyla is approved for up to three years of use. Um, there is a procedure to have them, um, put in, uh, but that's a long time. Uh, there's also the copper IUD. Um, it's non-hormonal approved for 10 years of use, but causes heavy menstrual bleeding and cramping. Um, there's also a subdermal implant, um, uh, Nexplanon. Uh, it's like the you know the little bars that they'll get implanted in their upper arm, um, and it can release progestin for three years. And um, I've heard some not great stories about it. Yeah. Recently, yeah, about like some issues with the uh, with it just being implanted and removing and that sort yeah. of thing interestingly i think i'd rather but do. it's very popular right now actually yeah well we, we have popular. them at our, our clinic we, yeah. we do all those though. we do all the iud's and the paragard and all that stuff i say we are nerd- i was say you do them <laughs> i don't do it no i don't definitely don't i'm not qualified <laughs> um no but uh, our women's health nurse practitioner does and then we have an OBGYN there yeah. as well yeah but um, all right, let's talk about some of the, the kind of patient-specific conditions that would maybe push us in one direction or the other amongst all these products. So I mentioned this one earlier, but breastfeeding. So if the patient is you know a new mother that's breastfeeding, you want to make sure that she's got adequate milk supply. Use progesterone only um, or a non-hormonal. You know, the Paragard is going to be totally fine as well. Uh, but the estrogen itself can lower the uh, amount of breast milk. Um, if the patient is having breakthrough bleeding or spotting, um, if it's happening early or mid-cycle, then we want to kind of target the estrogen dose and bump that up a little bit. So increase that estrogen dose. However, if the spotting is happening later in the cycle, then we probably want to go ahead and increase the progestin dose um, to kind of take care of that. So um, again, not a necessarily adverse effect, but it kind of can help get that cycle back sort of regulated again. Um, if a patient is dealing with, you know, acne, um, you know, or even just oily skin, um, which can then lead to acne, we do want to kind of um, provide them with a, uh, a progestin that has lower androgenic activity so that we don't get that same amount of sebum production and all that. Um, and then we also have one, like we mentioned earlier, that's got no androgenic activity or anti-androgenic, uh, which is the drosperinone, so the one that's in like Yaz and some of those other ones, Biaz. Um, and um, similarly, you would want to use a drosperinone-containing product um, if pa- patient has fluid retention or bloating because it can actually have some potassium-sparing diuretic properties. Um, so you might get a little bit of that fluid off. If they have heavy menstrual bleeding, you may want to use the quadrophasic like Mike talked about with it mimicking the um, natural um, hormone release a little bit better like Natasha. Um, I almost said Natasha, but I didn't. So, it's a generic. Yeah. Quadru- yeah, uh, can also consider um, four placebo pill, 
four placebo pill formulations or a continuous extended uh, version of the birth control. If a patient has hypertension, they should use a progestin only, like we said, um, or a non-hormonal if the blood pressure is uncontrolled. And postpartum, patients are at higher risk for VTE. Um, so combination products should be avoided in the first three weeks. Avoid them for the first six weeks if the patient is considered high risk. Um, and then use progestin only or a non-hormonal option. And then if they're breastfeeding postpartum, of course, we talked about using the progestin only as well in that situation. Nausea can happen, um, possibly decrease the estrogen dose because that's definitely a side effect of estrogen. Um, advise the patients to take it at night or maybe with food if possible or consider a progestin only or the vaginal ring or a non-hormonal option if nausea is an issue. If you have a patient who is you know, overweight or obese um, who is requesting the patch, uh, make sure that you let them know that it is going to be less effective um, in women that are weighing more than 198 pounds. Um, the other kind of caveat to that is if you have a patient who is trying to lose weight um, or at least keep their weight stable um, and they're asking about the uh, injectable medroxyprogesterone depot, um, that one will kind of um, – increase the likelihood of, of retaining and, and even gaining weight. Uh, and so that one can make it a little bit harder to kind of progress with that weight loss. Um, migraines, we already mentioned, but uh, if the patient has a migraine with an aura, then um, progesterone only or non-hormonal. However, if, it, if it's migraine without an aura, then we can really use whatever method we, we see fit. So as far as initiating therapy, not as simple as you'd think, but there's a few a few different ways you can you can do it. But it typically takes seven days of taking the oral contraceptive for it to become effective. So make sure you um, counsel on that and using backup contraception. Um, there is the quick start method. So you would start the medication immediately, use backup contraception for at least seven days, uh, and that's the quick start. There's the Sunday start method, which personally I like because I like um, knowing what day of the week I've started and then it just keeps going from there. Um, but you would take the first dose on Sunday after the onset of menstruation. So they start their menstrual cycle. The next Sunday you start the medication. You still use backup contraception for at least seven days. Um, used in order for the menstruation to occur during the week and be complete before the following weekend. So it's just a bit of a convenience. Um, additionally, patients could be started on their first day of menses. So if, um, it started within the first five days of menstrual bleeding, you don't necessarily have to use backup contraception. If it's past the first five days, use backup, uh, for seven days, but it can be started on the first day of menses. With the progestin only, nice and easy, begin any time, but still use backup contraception for 48 hours, so not quite the full seven, uh, but if it's progestin only, you still want two days of backup contraception. Uh, let's see. Should, um, what else do you want to go through? Um, that You did the um, initiating therapy. Yep. Uh, let's talk real quick about some missed doses. So... Um, you know, this there's different kind of schools of thought and different directions and whatnot, but kind of standard instructions from the CDC. Um, and if the package inserts available, great on individual products. But um, the general rule of thumb is if you have a combo product, um, then you miss one dose. You want to take that missed dose as soon as possible. Then you kind of want to just continue with the normal schedule, but you don't need a, a backup method. Um, if but it you, wouldn't hurt to use it if you wanted to. There you go. Cole says use one. <laughs> That's me after have, just having a baby. That was planned, by the way. Good. Good job, Cole. It was. Um, 
if you have two missed doses, so basically 48 hours or more since the last dose, then um, take the missed, missed dose as soon as possible, then continue on the normal schedule. Um, if the patient is in week three of the cycle, then skip the placebos and basically begin the next set of tablets. And you do want to use a backup method for seven days during that process. Um, and then if you have had unprotected sex within the last five days, maybe consider emergency contraception. So um, drug interactions are a significant thing to be aware of, especially because so many people have uh, birth control on their medication profile. It's an easy thing to overlook, uh, but there are some that uh, you want to definitely be aware of uh, decreasing the effectiveness of birth control. So rifampin would be one. It's not a super common drug, um, but it is a strong inducer. So patients need to use a backup method while taking rifampin and for six weeks after. Some more common drugs would be anticonvulsants like carbamazepine, oxcarbamazepine, phenytoin, topamax, lamotrigine, all can decrease the effectiveness of birth control, so counsel to use backup contraception. OTC products like St. John's Ward, which is generally just has a lot of uh, uh, drug interactions, um, that would be one, um, must be taken at least one hour prior to a bieta injection, so the, uh, the GLP-1 exenatide. If you're going to inject that, you need to take the birth control at least one hour before, and smoking can also decrease the effectiveness of uh, birth control as well. There is um, some on-demand um, contraception options. So it's, it's under a brand name called Fexi, but it's a non-hormonal on-demand contraception. It's a combination of lactic acid, citric acid, and potassium um, bitartrate. It maintains vaginal pH in an acidic range and decreases sperm motility. Um, it's a pre-filled um, applicator that must be administered vaginally immediately before or up to an hour before each um, intercourse. One dose for each intercourse. Um, avoid the use of vaginal rings with this, but it can be used along with other types of contraceptives that aren't that. Um, it does have some adverse effects associated with it. A lot of discomfort. Um, potentially uh, vulvovaginal burning sensation, pruritus, mycotic infection, some pain, um, UTIs, uh, bacterial vaginosis, stuff like that. So some side effects. Um, uh, there was a study called the AMPOWER study. Um, it was patients 18 to 35 years of age with regular menstrual cycles. The patients were followed for up to seven cycles and agreed to engage in at least three acts of um, intercourse, vaginal intercourse per cycle. And the seven-cycle cumulative pregnancy rate was 13.7. So I guess that would indicate a failure rate of about 86 percent, or a success rate of about 86 percent. So, which I mean, to me, if it was something else besides pregnancy, I would say 86 percent is pretty good. Now, However, I would say not good. I, I'm like, I don't know if I now trust if that. it's you know added on to hormonal contraception whatever. Yeah. If that's the only thing you're using, you're planning on it being as effective as other forms of birth control or contraception. Nay. Nay, I say. Unless Fexi wants to convince us otherwise. Pay us. And <laughs> maybe we'll change our minds. No. 86% starts to sound like And we may, we may pay us and we still won't change our minds. <laughs> We're going to call it like we see it. We're just complete sellouts. <laughs> just yeah, get to episode 200 and we just start selling out. Instantly. Um, and then uh, I guess we'll close with emergency 
yeah. contraception. So the most effective form of emergency contraception is, is going to be that Paragard, that copper IUD. So as long as it, it can be placed within five days of you know the unprotected sex, um, it's going to be very, very effective. Um, the other options like our Plan B or One Step, some of those over-the-counter products, they also have um, Ella is a I think it's still prescription only. Um, again, basically need to be used within five days. Um, however, the uh, effectiveness is sort of diminishing over time, so you want to take it as soon as possible. So don't wait five days if you don't have to. Um, around 6% of women that take one of the Plan Bs or One Step um, will experience some vomiting. And so if vomiting occurs within two hours of taking the medication, um, consider a repeat dose because um, you may not have absorbed enough of the medication. Uh, there's also kind of strategies for sort of doubling or tripling or more of your standard birth control if you need emergency contraception. We're not going to go into that now. However, there, um, my, one of my students just sent me a link from, um, I believe it was Princeton University site that had uh, like several different like dosing strategies for that based mm. on the products and stuff. So um, I got it's in an email. I saw it just a minute ago. So well, um, Cole was talking. So I'm gonna uh, I'll link it in the the show notes if those if as long as it the link comes out like I, I think it will. So um, I'll put that in there too, in case you're curious about that. But I don't want to. We won't go into all that because that's more expert opinion. Um, anything else, Cole? That's all I got. I'm excited to see what the video looks like, though. I'm terrified. I forgot to change the battery on one of the cameras, so right off the bat, I screwed that up. So Classic. Ruined uh, first shooting. Classic. No, I think it's going to be good. No, I hate it. <laughs> okay. Tear everything down, start over. AJ, order all new stuff. Put it on Cole's credit card. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you guys uh, are still liking the podcast. If you have any suggestions or topic ideas or guest ideas, anything like that, or you want to be a guest, um, make sure you hit us up and uh, send us an email. Uh, you can reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, you know, send us a DM or whatever. Um, you can uh, reach us through our texting platform. The number will be um, in the show notes, um, but it's four one five nine four three six one one six. Send us a text and we'll. we'll respond as quick as we can to that um and uh yeah just really really appreciate you guys taking the time to always uh you know listen to us and um we really really appreciate the support and we will see you next time have a good one